This is the Liberator Podcast from Giant Worldwide. Welcome to the Liberator Podcast. My name is Jeremy Kubitschek, and as always, I'm with the infamous Steve Cockrum from London, England. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing incredibly well, Jeremy. We are in the middle of an Indian summer, which to those of you on the other side of the pond means even September is slightly warmer than normal. So England is basking in 80 degrees temperatures at the moment, so we all feel suitably blessed. How do the uh, Indians feel about that, like the India Indians, when you say Indian summer? Is there any political correctness there, any issues? I think there is a whole colonial background, which is probably not worth going into at this stage, because <laughs> I think, we, I think we, we did at least leave the Indians a deep love of cricket in a railway system. Apart from that, I think you know Britain's uh, colonial past is something which we probably better just move <laughs> over. You guys missed yep. out on that. If you hadn't had that episode with the tea in the harbour, we might have been talking about you as well. So let's just move <laughs> on before, before we cause trouble. I love it. Hey, speaking of moving on, I'm going to be moving over to see you this week. Are you excited about that? I'm coming today, actually. I fly tonight to uh, London. Are you okay with that? You're joking, aren't you? Are you really coming? <laughs> <laughs> no, I promise you, we've already spoken to the airport. There will be a red carpet waiting for you, stretch limo as Giant One pulls into its private hangar at Terminal 4. So, yeah, don't worry. We're, we're looking forward to welcoming you back to sunny Britain tomorrow. So excited. We've got our X-Corps London retreat number two. I'm really, really fired up. Great, great group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. Just excited for what we'll be going through. And part of what we're going to talk about today, for all those listening, um, we're going to be sharing a little bit of what we do on our X-Corps events. We we have X-Corps as one of our products or programs. Uh, We do regional X-Corps in Knoxville, Tennessee, La Crosse, Wisconsin, Oklahoma City, Canton, Ohio, lots of different places, and we do our um, kind of national export in Santa Barbara and Atlanta, and then London is our um, London version of that. So a lot of fun, but what we do is we talk about a journey that we go on, and one uh, the, the journey, the, the metaphor we use is Mount Everest, and we talk about it. Now, Steve and I, we have to, Steve, have you ever climbed Mount Everest? Let's be truthful. Honestly, no. <laughs> uh, and I haven't either. And so, uh, but we've read a lot about it. And uh, the whole idea of climbing a mountain and what does it take to get from the base camp to the top. And in that journey, we talked about um, what you have to do as an individual. And then from there, we also then say, okay, where's the, what are the tools that you need? What do you need to do to get from one camp to the next? And then not only that, we talk about it in the metaphor of what happens if you have to take your team up the mountain. So the whole idea is that leadership is a journey, and that you start from base camp, and you're going to a summit, and it's really a process of dying. And then when you come back down, we want you to get to the point where you can actually then know how to lead other people up the mountain. So we call it transformation and multiplication. So Steve, you want to add any other thoughts to, to that before I have a special thing to share with our listeners? Oh, I'm excited now what the special thing is. But I think that we often say that base camp is still a huge achievement. And that in many ways, the fact that people are reaching out, reading books, going to conferences, you know, devouring content leadership, most people kind of stop there. 
And we've always said that kind of you can celebrate that, but in our experience, information, however amazing, doesn't usually lead to transformation. And therefore, the challenge to individual leaders first is to say, are you prepared to go to the next level in your own leadership? Because in the end, your people will never go further than you've gone. But you talked a lot. I, I mean, I love the idea of you have to acclimatize to learn how to live on the mountain, to live at altitude, to live with what we call that level of self-awareness as a leader, so that you then, from a position of health and experience, are then able to invite others to come on the journey with you, where you're their Sherpa, you're their leader. And I, I found that one to be quite a profound you know, metaphor, I guess, of understanding where we are and what it actually takes to live at that level on the mountain of self-awareness and leadership. So instead of us talking about Mount Everest as if we're experts, uh, I mean, we, you know, we are kind of experts in a lot of things, but probably not an expert of Mount Everest specifically, you know, other than I th reading. I think, you can, I think you can go further than saying probably, Jerry. I think categor <laughs> categorically would be the, the word that would come to mind. <laughs> we are not experts, but we do have someone who is an expert, and I'm Ooh. going to introduce that person. We actually have a special guest today. It's Come our on. actual first first guest. You know, we, you and I like to talk, and so now we're allowing someone else into our world to talk with us. But we're so excited because we've got a actual. Uh, not only is this person has he climbed Mount Everest, but he's climbed other peaks as well. We've got John Beatty on the line. John, welcome to the Liberator Woo! Podcast. Hey guys, thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it very much. Now, as we asked you earlier, you are right now on top of the summit. Is that right? Is that true? I am on top of the summit. My fingers are freezing from holding this phone from that introduction, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to bear through it. Is that Verizon or AT&T? <laughs> Who's up there? Is there... <laughs> it's T-Mobile. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what a great, great, great international calling plan. <laughs> John is a uh, is a professional speaker. Uh, he also uh, has a, a number of different marketing services from from internet marketing, but he's also a climber. And uh, just so thrilled to have you here on the Liberator podcast with us. And then uh, we want to hear your story. We want to ask uh, questions. So can you just give us an overview of your uh, climbing career? Absolutely. Uh, started climbing when I was 13 years old uh, and promptly read the book Into Thin Air. I was about 13 and a half, 14 years old when I said, man, all those, all those crazy experiences, I want to have some of those in my life too. Uh, most people got scared off by the book. I got intrigued by it and made a commitment then to uh, summit not only Mount Everest, but the tallest mountains in the world. They call them the seven summits, tallest mountain on each continent. Um, I was 22 when I first uh, went on a mountaineering expedition. My buddy and I went up the Grand Teton, uh, just without any skills, any guides. We just said, we'll go figure it out. And I started failing my way forward by screwing up on mountains. And now I've climbed uh, over 100 mountains in my life. And um, Mount Everest being one of those, which I finally uh, went and climbed in 2013. So between the ages of 13 and 31, I was dreaming about it, preparing for it refining my skills, learning about it, studying routes and maps, and um, getting my body into the best physical shape possible in order to, like as you said uh, earlier, Steve, compete with that altitude or acclimatize as much as the human body can to, um, to, to 29,000, 35 feet above sea level. 
there aren't many athletes like us around, John, so Jeremy probably won't understand any of the training that goes into being able to function <laughs> at that level. But I'll let you keep asking the questions, Jerry. Uh, the snarky British. Keep going, John. Let's hear more about uh, – <laughs> okay, so, so let's, let's talk about, um, you know, obviously we've read, lots of people watch the movie. What is reality like to, to your body and your mental makeup, your emotions? as you're climbing the mountain. You, you nailed it when you said you, you start dying. You go into an active state of shutting down and dying. Um, the higher you get on the mountain, the, obviously the, the less oxygen that there is, and humans just aren't meant to live at that altitude. So from base camp, which is 17,500 feet, um, is really the last place that you can recover. And so one of the reasons that we climb up and then back down to base camp, so you go up to camp one and then you have to go all the way back down through the Kumbu Icefall, which you just climbed up back to base camp. It's not only to get a taste of that, uh, that thinner air, but it's also because without oxygen, your body can't recover. So all the little cuts, bruises, uh, your muscles that obviously get sore and split, you know, the way muscle fibers grow is they tear open and then they have to recover. Well, none of that, pro- none of those processes can happen unless you go to back down to about 17,500 feet. So um, you, you get yourself used to that Camp 1 altitude, not at Camp 1, but back at base camp. Then once you're at base camp and you've recovered, five or six days go by, you're ready to go up to Camp 2. You do the whole thing over again, passing Camp 1 up to Camp 2, way back down um, to, to base camp. Um, so that's what, it's, that's what it's like. And you go into this, uh, back to the original statement, the state of dying uh, above 23,500 feet, your body really can't make that, those adjustments anymore. It depends on the person, your genetics, your, uh, uh, your physical training and all of that. But generally, we think of 23,500 feet as the, the limit of where we can acclimatize to. Uh, and so anything, anything above there, it's really just a ticking time bomb about not if, you'll, if you're going to shut down or if you're going to start having problems, but, but when. And we use this metaphor, John, because we really believe that leadership, like true leadership, is in the same way it is a journey of dying because you're, you're learning how to um, fight for the highest possible good in other people. You're learning how to dive it to yourself. You're learning how to actually uh, move people. And, and so um, most people never truly experience this level of leadership that we talk about in the same way that most people will never ever experience climbing at that degree. So that's why we, we, um, we just love the metaphor. So tell us a, a little bit about um, your experience with uh, the Sherpas, their role. What did you learn from them uh, every time you climb with them? Uh, what, what role did they play in the mountain guide as well? Um, walk us through what they're doing to help you climb the mountain. Yeah, great question. The first, there, there really is kind of a hierarchy of, of Sherpa. Uh, the first is, is just to make a clarification so that most people don't realize is that uh, Sherpa is a, is a, a race. It's a, it's a group of people who are indigenous to the Kumbu Valley, and they are uh, uh, born traditionally above 14,000 feet above sea level. So the tallest mountains in the United States, Mount Rainier, Mount Whitney, in the contiguous U.S., are, that's the summit. <laughs> They're born at that height and above. So they have got a genetic advantage. Um, however, you've got your, uh, your people who are just going about their everyday life. That's the, sort of the, in the climbing world, the, uh, 
the first of, of the three major types or kinds of, of Sherpa that we experience. Um, and so they're, they're providing support uh, not only for their, for their, for their villages, um, but when it comes to Westerners, they've got the shops and they've got the, the tea huts and the, the inns that we stay at along the way to base camp. Now, on this journey to base camp, there are also the trekking Sherpa. These are the ones that you see carrying loads of, not even exaggerating, 250 to 300 pounds suspended over their foreheads and then resting on their backs. And this is what's incredible to me. Like they've seen the backpack. They know that the backpack exists. They choose to strap these, these straps over their foreheads and then carry the, the loads on their backs, which is just an amazing feat of, of physical effort. I mean, 300 pounds and they're walking for 10, 20 miles a day. Um, it's just amazing how, how much strength to weight ratio these guys have got. The final uh, uh, classification of Sherpa that's specific to our conversation here uh, is uh, climbing Sherpa. And these are like the NBA uh, uh, basketball stars of the Kumbu Valley. They are heroes. They're the most well-paid of anyone uh, in, in the Kumbu Valley. Uh, and they're, they're the ones who are typically um, taller as well. So you've got usually like five foot five, five foot six is about the average height for a trekking Sherpa. And then you like five eight to six one six two is about the tallest for a climbing Sherpa. So it's interesting to see this physical difference, just like we would look at our NFL players or our uh, NBA players mm-hmm. as like the, the, the giants. You know, to to give you guys a reference as well or a shout out. So while we're climbing with uh, with Sherpa, I have I considered him my guide. He's not a guy who's carrying stuff for me. He's not someone who's dragging me up the mountain. And I think that's a big myth on Everest is that, oh, you just get this Sherpa to drag you up the hill. It just, it just doesn't happen. Um, they're, they're with you. They're climbing alongside of you. They're showing you their experience. They've, my, uh, my, my Sherpa's name is my hero is uh, Nuru Gyalvin Sherpa is his full name. And he was with me every step of the way, making sure that I was properly clipping in, tying the correct knots, uh, going the, the correct route, not climbing on the days when we shouldn't have been climbing, and then climbing on the days when he thought was the uh, was going to be the best weather windows or the best conditions for us to set foot on the ice. So that example right there is um, what Steve and I talk about often in our X-Core and in Giant in general. Uh, leadership is so hard, that's why most people don't do it. Uh, most people don't have the patience or the time to actually sit here and want the best for the other person. So we often mm. say, we're look for a year, we're a Sherpa, you're the hero. But in time, we want to make you into a Sherpa. Now, I know we can't because I know that's a race of people, And but for the metaphor of what the, <laughs> of the, climbing, uh, of, of what the climbing Sherpa uh, does, uh, that metaphor of the climbing Sherpa, is that what we're doing is we're actually helping people go up the mountain and we, we're looking at emotional intelligence, we're looking at uh, personality and we're looking at uh, hard skills, IQ, uh, and we're helping people adjust as we call it applied leadership learning um, as you go in the same way that the climbing Sherpa is helping you. They're not doing everything for you. And I think that's a great misnomer that the leader does not do everything for the person either. A great leader is basically fighting to help people get and climb and grow and be the type of leader that they always wanted to be. So any feedback on that, Steve? I've got a question, John. I mean, I, I think if you remember the, when you climbed Everest and you had your climbing Sherpa with you, was there a moment 
or many moments when you actually wonder whether you'd ever make it and were tempted to give up? That's an awesome question, and I get that a lot. And the answer is that every single day, uh, we doubt, all climbers doubt whether or not we'll make it to the top. Even even our guides, even the Sherpas uh, wonder, are we going to make it? We don't know. You have emotional battles every day. You have physical battles on a daily basis. And this is typically why older climbers end up having a higher summit success rate than younger climbers because they've developed an emotional endurance that allows them to say, this is this may be painful right now in this moment or this may be uh, uh pushing me beyond my emotional limits. Uh, that's another effect of altitude is, is it makes you hyper emotional. Um, and so, so you're, you see, you see other climbers giving up around you. You see other climbers even passing away around you. There were nine deaths on the mountain the season that I was there in 2013. Um, however, it's ultimately the team that you've got with you and the people who are you surround yourself with that make the difference. So sometimes I would see other climbers kind of uh, get into the, the complaining mode, like, oh, this is so hard, this is awful, these guys are uh, already quitting, ah, should we quit too? And they get those, those pictures of others quitting. Uh, and it's kind of like when you see a celebrity commit suicide, typically you, you get a spike in suicides in the country. And I thought the same thing was happening on the mountain. Not that people were committing suicide, but um, people would quit. And then suddenly the people who were talking about it and surrounding themselves with those messages would also quit. Now, conversely, I said I wanted to surround myself with the best possible voices that I could, the people who were most encouraging. Uh, and I thought that that was a group that had a much higher success rate on the mountain than those who complained and said everything was going wrong. Yeah, I, I, Henry Cloud, who I think spoke at Leadercast this year, talked, spoke about the power of the other and this idea that basically there is something which happens when in relationship people climb together, which allows people to go beyond what they're physically capable of doing. I guess the question I have, John, is to go, do you think you could have made it without a Sherpa or actually was it the people around you that actually when you were struggling, it was them being with you, gave you the, the I guess, the ability to climb when physically you probably reach the end emotional limit. How important is team, I guess, in that point? Oh, it's, it's everything. You know, could I have made it? Maybe, I, <laughs> possibly. Uh, did it make it infinitely easier, more enjoyable, more fun? Did it distract from the hard and awful moments? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, not just climbing with uh, occasionally I would, I would find other climbers in my expedition who were about the same skill level and say, Hey, let's, let's climb together. Let's do this. Uh, let's do this section uh, as a team and um, being able to climb with those other people and see their, uh, their strengths and weaknesses and glean their strengths and then, uh, kind of, uh, help them with their weaknesses. It, it makes it just infinitely more enjoyable. Uh, it takes away from living in your head and puts you in the moment. Uh, and ultimately more effective because of those things. So it's everything. You know, John, you mentioned um, I, I, in your last comment, you talked about um, the, the older climbers did better in, in, in a lot mm -hmm. of cases because they are more emotionally intelligent or emotionally uh, stable. And we talk a lot about that, the idea of, of being secure, being confident, and being humble and what that does um, to those around you. 
And just, you know, we have a belief that there's really a pandemic of leadership or lack of leadership around the world uh, simply because most people are either for themselves um, and they're not necessarily, necessarily giving themselves away to other people. But even those that really want to be an influence and they want to serve people, there's a, a lack of emotional uh, stability. And almost like uh, self-control and really truly knowing yourself, leading yourself, sounds like that's probably one of the key components to being successful as a climber. Is that right? Of knowing yourself? Oh, it's completely, completely true. It's like if you, if you just look at the analogy of rock climbing, what if the rock was this like spongy, amorphous substance? You couldn't grab onto it. Uh, so the climber would have nowhere to go because they just droop down, right? It's kind of a funny, like surreal picture. Right. But um, same thing with leadership. If you're not solid and give clear boundaries about who you are, what you expect, uh, what your uh, sense of self is, if you can't show that and display that clearly to others, they don't have anything to grab onto, to push off of, to use as leverage up. Uh, it's, it's just this sponge that they'll be trying to grab onto if you don't know who you are. So um, let, let me let me ask this, and see if you might have a thought. So um, then talk with us. Did, by the way, did you summit, John? Were you able to summit that, that year? May 21st at 6.58 a.m. Excuse me, 5.58 a.m. reached the summit of Mount Everest. Come on. That is awesome. Wow. Now, can you, can, you. You walk us, can you walk us through that experience from Camp 4 to uh, the top and then back down? Because most people don't think about coming back down as the most dangerous or one of the most dangerous. Yeah, that's an awesome point. So uh, uh, let, me, let me start with from Camp 4. So you're at 26,000 uh, feet above sea level, about 26,080 feet above sea level. And um, we leave at 7 p.m., that way we can climb through the night and get back down before the following afternoon's storms hit. Um, the biggest problem on Everest is people staying too late on uh, summit day or starting too late or arriving at the summit uh, beyond uh, an acceptable time window. Um, and then they later get stuck in, uh, in weather as happened in 1996 and that was the subject of the Everest movie. So uh, 7 a.m. we put on the oxygen masks. I did use oxygen to climb the mountain. Uh, and the the pace at which I was climbing uh, was three breaths to one step. That's as fast as I could move. Uh, and I'm a, a, a super fit climber. I know what I'm doing. I can move very quickly on mountains, but um, with that little oxygen, that was as fast as I could go. And interestingly enough, that was a pretty quick clip compared to the rest of the group as well. I was getting some compliments from some of the other the guides on the mountain, like, yeah, John, you're doing great. And I'm going, oh my gosh. Like, one, two, three, step, and that's as fast as I could move. Um, got about two and a half hours into the climb and couldn't take another one of those steps. My foot was stuck into the ice. I looked down at it and there's nothing visual that I can figure out that's going wrong or uh, I, like there's no reason I shouldn't be able to move my foot. Um, Nuru, my guide, checks, checks in on me, turns around and he says, problem? I said, I don't know. I can't move. He comes back over to, to me, walks a few steps down the hill, looks at my oxygen canister and the, uh, the dial, the, the, the meter on the regulator to him, he could see it was empty and he taps the canister, the oxygen canister twice, ping, ping. 
And he says, sir, empty. Maybe you die. (laughs) No, (laughs) that's not going to (laughs) happen. And he says, stay here. So uh, I take the oxygen mask off and start breathing that negative 40 degree uh, uh, outside air and uh, can feel this chill just going down my lungs and freezing the hairs on the inside of my throat uh, and and that freezing air filling up my lungs and just chilling my body from the inside out. And he says, stay here, I return. And he goes off into the darkness of the, uh, the Himalayan sky and we all, we're all wearing headlamps and I turned my headlamp off for a moment uh, because I wanted to save the battery as he as he went, presumably, hopefully, I was thinking to find another canister of oxygen, which was close. We were close to one of the stashes, which is on an area of the climb called the balcony. As I'm waiting here, it's just it's just black. It's uh, about 10 o'clock at night at this point. I look down to the left and to the right, and I see these things that I think are headlamps, and I'm just thinking that's bizarre. Why are there people climbing from the the, the southeast face, uh, thinking, what the heck are these these climbers doing? There's no route up this way. And then I realized that those weren't headlamps. Those are the stars. And we were looking down on the Milky Way galaxy. We were so high up above the curvature of the Earth on this, this pinnacle that we were actually angling our heads down to see the stars below us. And throughout the rest of the night, I just watched this Milky Way galaxy rotating beneath us. Just an amazing uh, surreal fantasy experience. So as I'm there waiting, I'm looking at my down suit, which is this big puffy like marshmallow man suit that you're wearing, like that guy from uh, Ghostbusters, but but red. Uh, and we're look at, I look at it, and it starts turning gray. Uh, and this was the process of my my brain shutting down from the lack of oxygen. So I lost visual uh, ability to process colors. Nuru comes back after about 10 minutes and he's got a fresh canister of oxygen and he screws it into my regulator and I take that first breath of fresh air and as I do it, I look back down at my down suit and it turns red again and it's amazing to be experiencing this this physiology of uh, dancing on the edge of, of death essentially. Nuru says, still want to climb? And I say, absolutely, still want to climb. So we, we keep, and you can stop me at any point here if you guys want to have any questions. No, no, but, this, is, this is awesome. Keep going. I want to know what right. happens. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm, I've got, this is my last canister of oxygen. They're supposed to last for 10 hours. That first one ran out in two and a half hours. Now the reason I later found out that it ran out was because of the cold with, I already mentioned it was about 40 degrees below zero, really probably about 37, 30 38, kind of where Fahrenheit and Celsius intersect. <laughs> like you know, it's cold when Fahrenheit and intersect. Uh, Fahrenheit and Celsius come together. Um, but with the wind chill, about 25 mile an hour winds, that puts it down to, depending on the model you use, 80 degrees below zero, 75 degrees below zero. Um, just, just within seconds, any exposed flesh is going to start getting frost nipped, and then within a minute or two, it'll be frost bit. So what happened to the regulator was the metal got so cold that it it started to warp and it couldn't properly thread to create a seal. So it was leaking because of how cold uh, how cold the temper the outside ter- temperature was. So we kept climbing. I said I'm I'm still in this. I've got a second tank. We thought we fixed the issue, so we continued to climb all throughout the night, um, passing the bodies of several climbers. 
um, some who had passed away the, the previous night and some who were as, uh, as, as old as the 1996 uh, tragedy that the movie Everest and the book Into Thin Air were based on, um, which is just an awful experience um, to, see, to see those. Um, eventually, though, I arrived at the South Summit and saw what's known as the Hillary Step. Um, it's the final hardest section of the climb, which is really a pretty easy rock climb, but in the context of 29,000 feet above sea level, it is <laughs> a beast. It's a monster of a climb. So uh, luckily, there was, there was no line for me. There were three climbers ahead. I got to take a few photos of them climbing, and uh, as soon as I was ready, I was able to just jump on the rock and start climbing up. About 25, 30 feet up higher, I was just panting and huffing and puffing and couldn't catch my breath up there. And um, I wedged my leg to sort of balance myself um, on this, uh, on the top of the Hillary step. And I'm thinking a couple thoughts first, man, if my leg were to break or this rock were to fall uh, at this moment, there's no assistance. There's no help. Helicopters can't fly that high. People can't drag you down because of that pace that we're moving at is so slow that there's no way that a team of even six trained evacuation sherpa could get you down in that that time frame um the other thing is that on one side of me there's an 8,000 foot drop back into nepal on the opposite side there's a 10,000 foot drop into tibet and china and a classic joke that uh, a lot of people like to say at this point is if you fall you want to fall over to the 10,000 foot side because you're going to live longer <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> um so uh, I get to the top and I look up at the the summit from here. This is the first time you can actually see the summit of the mountain. And I see this, this group of these blue and red giant down suits and uh, yellow down suits celebrating and cheering. And I'm thinking, I get chills, not just from the, the freezing temperature, but from, oh my gosh, this is it. This is my lifetime dream. I'm going to reach the summit. I take a few more steps down the path and Nuru grabs my backpack, pulls me back knocks twice on the canister, ping, ping, again. And he says, sir, also leaking, almost empty. We must turn around. And I'm thinking, no way. My heart just sank. We got to stop. We have to, it's like 200 horizontal feet to the summit, not even vertical feet, horizontal feet. We can go to get to the summit. I'm trying to argue with him. I'm like, come on, Nuru, let's go, let's go. He says, no, we must turn around. Out of nowhere, a guide whose name is Justin, who was with uh, the, the larger expedition that I was with, uh, Justin Merle, he's uh, with IMG International Mountain Guides out of Seattle, Washington, or the area. Uh, he comes up out of nowhere and he's like, congratulations, you did it. I saw you had an awesome pace. That's great. You're at the top. I say, I have to turn around. This isn't good. Like, I have Nuru saying we have to go back. He says, that's ridiculous. Why? I say, I'm out of oxygen. It's been leaking all day. We can't get the threads to match up. He says, oh, I got you covered. Watch this. He unscrews my regulator, dips it into his tea canister, pulls it out, screws it back in. And I'm like, is this guy hypoxic? Is he having like altitude issues? What is going on? He screws it in and the he says, watch. And we just see this expanding, freezing tea fill in the gaps where the leaks were caused or the leaks was coming leaks were coming out of the uh of the the oxygen setup so that ice is what sealed the leak and he says all right you're on borrowed time get up to the summit take your photos 
get your butt back down. I said, you got it. So I did those three breaths to one step over and over and, to, and just keeping my head right down at the snow until Nuru says to me, please, sir, very cold. No more mountain to climb. We go back now, please. <laughs> and I, I, I lift my head up and I saw that there was indeed no more mountain to actually climb up. And I, I kind of like looked around like, wait, what else are we supposed to go? I mean, we've been climbing for two months. It was just in this idea that there's always more up. And I look around and there it was, the summit of Mount Everest. There were prayer flags next to me. The sun was rising over China, casting these massive shadows over the Tibetan Valley. You could look down and see clouds that are creating this beautiful bed, making it look like all the other mountains were these islands in the sky beneath us took those five photographs and that's when we stopped and uh, uh, had to turn around. That's amazing, John. Here's a, here's a big, big uh, comment or question to me both. Who, who was it more in, inspiring for, you or for your Sherpa? Um, I believe that it was more inspiring for me at that point. He was uh, he was ready to go back. Um, he has thought that was his fifth expedition. And he said that it was his hardest of all of the climbs that he's, <laughs> he's gone on. He, he was experiencing some mild, uh, uh, it's called AMS, acute mountain sickness. He was experiencing some of that as well. And, um, he was, he was ready to be done. <laughs> he was ready. So in the case of a leadership perspective to kind of go, uh, what you just said was both in like you, you led yourself and you fought through certain obstacles to climb and make sure that you got there. And also you had a Sherpa who was fighting for you and other people along the way fighting for you so that you could have that experience. And, and that's really our metaphor. It's not necessarily about Mount Everest. It's simply the fact that um, we we're, we're trying to raise up leaders who know themselves and can lead themselves and who will, who really want to go higher. But we're also working for uh, Sherpas to help people learn how to help other people go higher. And, and that, that combination, that journey is like, can you do that in the everyday minutia of running a warehouse or working with a team of people or being a CEO of a company? I mean, it's just, yeah, it's not the same metaphor in that like there's not life and death and life and death changes it, but just a simple idea of understanding how do you climb? How do you push and go further? Uh, what does climbing look like? And then also to be a Sherpa for someone else where you're actually helping them climb the mountain. So thanks for, thanks for letting our metaphor come more alive with that amazing, yeah, so. amazing story. Steve, you're very welcome. Thoughts or comments? I think it was, I mean, one of the things, John, when you said about the Sherpa, this was his fifth expedition. And I think the capacity we find is that the hardest thing in the world is to actually commit to the long-term process of building other leaders worth following. Um, you know, in some ways, getting that self-awareness for individuals, we, we can really help them with that. But the place that we find differentiates the, the good leaders from the great leaders is who is prepared to again and again continue that process of developing team, developing individuals, helping them reach, I guess, the, the summit of capable of and you know I, th I know from our point of view sometimes I take more delight now in watching the, the climb almost of those that we
get to apprentice and lead inside our world, watching mm-hmm. them, as it were, put their flag at the, the objective or the goal that they never thought they'd get to. So I guess, you know, my question to you, John, is have you ever been tempted to, to kind of, do you take groups with you? Do you enjoy the, in many ways, maybe not up Everest, but actually taking people, climbing with you and sharing some of that expertise? Is that something that fires you as well, or are you, do you like climbing your own? No, that's an awesome question. I actually get, like you, more pleasure out of seeing other people spark to life and seeing uh, the the confidence that they get and the changes that they make in their life through this act of, of going either mountaineering. Um, for example, I went with my father and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro uh, or rock climbing. I've trained many people how to how to just go vertically up, up rocks here in the United States. Um, that's way more fun, and it's it's ultimately more fulfilling because a mountain is a selfish place. Over so the top of Mount Everest, it's just you up there and some ice and some rocks, and it's an arbitrary piece of land in the top of the Himalayan sky. So what? But if you can help somebody else reveal who their reveal their true self and reveal to them who their true self is that they may not even have even known, so they have this process of self discovery. Well, now the mountains are a tool in order to bring out your best possible version of you. It's fantastic. Great. So for all those listening to the Liberator Network, uh, Liberator Podcast, I'm sorry, you, um, you now get to uh, experience a little bit more of Everest from a deeper version. Now, John, thank you for being with us. Um, John Beattie, you all, thank you. And John, um, can you tell us, uh, where to find info about you, whether it's Twitter or a website or any details? Absolutely. My website is climbonsuccess.com, C-L-I-M-B-O-N-S-U-C-C-E-S-S.com. Uh, and my links to all my social media uh, are right there on the, on the page. Man, I'm so appreciate you being on the Thank Liberator you. Podcast today. Uh, thanks for your story. Thanks for um, going for it. Thanks for all you do. Really, really value that. And uh, just, uh, I, I know Steve and I, we were enamored listening to you. It was almost like an audio book. We could have leaned back and fallen asleep <laughs> listening to you talk about your story. And I'm sure the, like, uh, the reality is we probably only heard uh, 2% of your story. There's so much more that you, you want to share. So, for those of you that uh, want to, climbonsuccess.com, John Beatty. Thank you again, John. And uh, we'll wrap up this version. Steve, any last final comment from London? No, just looking forward to welcoming Giant One to Heathrow tomorrow. And uh, the red carpet and the brass band has already been booked, so you'll be fine. Oh, uh, you always take care of me. Please don't kiss the tarmac like you did last time. They thought the Pope had arrived. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, the, the Brits don't. They don't do that kind of stuff. So I'll hug people and smile and yell and be obnoxious. So that'll be great. All right, you guys. Hey, John. Thanks so much. And uh, we're you. finished with this version of Liberate Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. That concludes today's episode of the Liberator Podcast from Giant Worldwide. You can find out more information about us online at giantworldwide.com.